This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. So at the start of each episode, Shag, uh, we, you know, take a quick, quick, quick chronology through our relationship to refer to a previous podcast called Fussy Eater. And Shag, I I know you do analytics and you see what people like to do on the internet and all that kind of thing. I've had zero listeners of Spooko, zero people in the Feel Bad Club who have ever said anything about Fussy Eater. And I just wanted to clear up that it's not a joke or a lie. There's an old podcast. <laughs> there is a podcast called Fussy Eater. <laughs> it's called Fussy Eater. At the time, I was very proud of it. I'm too scared to listen back to it now because I expect every single thing we said I would now wash my hands of. But I just wanted to be clear that it's not a joke or a lie. And if you're ever inclined to be like, oh, Peach, why is there not more Spooko content? Guess what? Uh, you can do a bit more Spooko Feel Bad Club homework. And check out that previous one, unless, Shag, we wash our hands of it. And I thought I'd just raise real quickly whether we disown anything we've previously done or whether we hang on to it. Well, look, like the first couple of... Couple of years yeah, of the Spooko. F- yeah, kind of. Like the first couple of years of Spooko, mm. Fussy Eater does sound pretty bad because I've taught myself how to edit audio mm. all through this journey. And, you know, now we're into like, what, the fourth or fifth year of Spooko. It's starting to sound a bit more crisp than it used to. I would have been terrified of doing something like what we're doing today a couple of years ago but i'm still kind of terrified because Mm. today on the show we're joined by not one but two guests who are both audio experts as well Mm. and it's something we do time to time on spooko where we invite people who actually make horror movies to talk about (laughs) their experience of it because obviously we're well i'm a fan Peaches are someone I'm trying to make a fan. So it's nice to hear the experience of people who've actually been on the other side of horror films. And I could not be more excited by our guests today because last year, end of last year, in episode, I think, 152, Mm. we had a guest, uh, Mark Bradshaw, who scored Spooko's number one horror film of the year, You Will Not Be Alone. Now, the next film, at the end of that episode, he talked about the fact that he was scoring a new film called Run, Rabbit, Run. It's since become the number one hor- the number one film, not just horror film, the number one film yes. in Netflix Australia at the moment. And so I could not be more excited to invite back Mark Bradshaw and Sydney music legend Marcus Whale, who co-produced the score with him, onto Spooko today. Guys, welcome and welcome back. Hey, guys. Welcome back, Mark. Hey. Welcome, Marcus. So nice to be back. First of all, Mark, let's yeah. talk about this because you mentioned at the end of the episode 152 when we had you on, you mentioned you were working on Run, Rabbit, Run. Has this been sort of – is this something you've been working on for a little while? I think I was working on it, and I remember mentioning Marcus, right? Saying we're you gonna, did, yeah. I yeah, remember yeah, that. Yeah, I remember um, being like, what? No way, Marcus Whale. So it definitely had started, but I think I was partway through it. And freaking out and thinking, how the hell do you make music for a horror film? And so I, I'm definitely the peach of in the duo, duo that is me and Marcus. And Marcus's job was to convince me that this is something that's possible. Had you worked <laughs> with Marcus before? 
on other projects before you did Run Rabbit Run together? Yeah. Yeah, we've done a few things together. Music for a dance piece. Um, what else, Marcus? Uh, well, I, I guess a, a lot of the time I was kind of sort of assisting you a little bit. Like, uh, like in that dance piece, I was, the, I was a musician playing the computer, basically. Uh, that, was, that was the top of like season two where yeah. I was helping out. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Marcus produced the music for Top of the Lake um, season two, so Top of Lake China Girl. But the thing that we do mostly together is sing R&B. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if, if you're not listening from Sydney, you might not know the Marcus Whale in Sydney, if you like music, is mm. best known for his work in the band Collarbones. Now, it's weird for me to introduce the band Collarbones to you because they just announced they're breaking up and they're in the midst of their final <laughs> tour. Um Hey Marcus, how is this final tour going? Because it's it's this new uh, the 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 final record filth is like the catchiest shit you've ever done. It's so good. Yeah, it's been really fun. Um, I don't know. I I don't feel very angsty about it, which is good. I feel like it's 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 been really interesting and cute to play these old songs again and everyone have a nice time remembering, uh, remembering the past. <laughs> if if you've never heard Collarbones before, number one. Do check them out because I think streaming residuals last forever. So until the internet dies, they can still get some of that sweet cashola from you <laughs> listening to them. Heaps of heaps <laughs> of cash from streaming. No, but also just discover them because they're the best. But I'm also going to play like a little snippet of their new record at the end of this uh, at the end of this pod this episode today because it's definitely well worth your time. But as much as I want to just do a general interview about you guys and your friendship and singing R&B together, what I really want to hear about... <laughs> we could do a little bit, maybe, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> it's an acapella. What R&B mm. do you guys sing together? Uh, it's very improvised, and um, it's basically just vocal acrobatics, and we try to outdo each other, um, and we perform it for each other purely. <laughs> could we? Could we have... A little. We can try. And session. a one, and a I mean, two, and a one, two, three. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> um, maybe later. <laughs> yeah, maybe later. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, look, I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mentioned earlier in this podcast episode that's already gone for like half an hour, I think, uh, that the, the two guests we have today helped mm. co compose the score for a film that's doing really well on Netflix at the moment. In fact, when I watched it last night, it was currently ranked number one in film. When you hear something like that, you guys are artists. Like, does that affect you? Do you like that? Do you hate that? What does it feel like scoring the number one film in the country right now? Well, I had no idea <laughs> until, you, until you mentioned it now. It is kind of crazy, yeah. It's, um, it's I don't know. How do, how do you feel, Marcus? Yeah, it's it's funny because it it feels quite abstract. Yeah, um, th this is maybe something about because you know I'm I'm this isn't what I do very often um, scoring stuff. Uh, I I sort of maybe didn't real no I I guess I didn't consciously acknowledge the way that like making a movie is is this like semi alienated process where you know you do it and then you say goodbye and then you kind of like maybe see each other at the premiere but maybe <laughs> not and then like ultimately. Uh, it all happened a while ago and wasn't very ceremonious. Mm. 
Yeah. Can I just pick up on that point, Marcus, of, of, of the line between the creativity you're drawn to and what I might call not quite the commercial, but, but something you're briefed to do. And I, I'm sort of really, really interested in, in how you each view creativity, the line between the art you would make for yourself, quote, quote, and the art that someone else would engage you to make. Do you sort of see a bright line between someone asking you to join their project to put on a score versus you following your own path, your own collarbones uh, <laughs> inflected path? I think, yeah, for me, it's, it's definitely really different parts of my brain uh, and I feel quite differently about them. Um, sometimes one is easier than the other, um, but that changes. So, like, what, working to a brief, I suppose, um, it feels, a little, you know, it's less personal and less sort of, in some ways, it can be very exploratory, um, but it's exploratory in a really different way to making stuff for myself. It's like, okay, I need to achieve this effect I need to satisfy this particular need. Uh, what do I have to do to to meet that? It feels more like designing something, maybe, rather than than um, expressing myself more on on a, on a kind of more free level, I suppose. Can I pick up on that point, Mark, and throw to you? Because um, one of the lines I like when thinking about horror is that it's a genre that's designed probably only alongside pornography, really, to elicit a really specific response. And so it's not so much an exploration broadly of, you know, what the muse said to you. <laughs> um, it's more of like how how are we on a journey to cause people engaging with this work to have this response. And, Mark, I wonder how you feel about that that kind of journey of like I'll either just make something and put it out in the world versus I'm going to pursue making people feel a very certain way. Mm. Yeah, I think with horror it's, it's – um it is so specific, and the music had to do something very particular, which I'm not used to. I'm not, yeah, I'm used to sort of being a bit looser with what I do. I don't know. It's like you fumble as well. We made lots of mistakes, and and ultimately we just want to please the team and uh, whatever it takes to get there. So we throw a bunch of things out there, and then refine it with their feedback. So that's kind of how it works. I'm so keen to hear what you knew about this initially, like what the director basically asked you to do initially. Like what was your original brief for the soundtrack for this film? There was um, a lot of – it had to be scary, but I think there was at, at the beginning there was an idea that there would be more like character-driven cues. Um, but that idea sort of went out the window eventually. Is that right, Marcus, don't you think? Cause like, yeah, I don't, I don't think we did that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean I tried, and I I kept trying to the end, and then finally it's like if the music isn't scary, and if it's not like hitting the sobs and and doing that job very well, then we, there's no space for it in the film. Um. So yeah, the brief definitely changed as the edit was coming together. Because you know we talked about this last time, Mark. Yeah, horror is not your natural <clears throat> genre. Marcus, have you had a bit of experience either as a horror fan or making horror in your past? More as a fan, for sure. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not super experienced as a composer for screen generally, but horror, I'd, I'd only maybe done a short before that was a horror film, but I am like a, a very deep 
fan and spiritually deep fan of horror <laughs> uh, and and the like importance of horror. Like I I feel like horror is like um the 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 type of movie that that makes me feel most like I don't know. Um, well, yeah, it's it's like how you said before, Peach. It's it's a like a visceral response. Um, and the music in horror also is it feels like it, it's it's often about creating a bodily response. And there's something really f- interesting and and fun about trying to explore that, um, and 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 kind of trying to imagine based on my feeling what is going to hit in in the scene. I often I had no idea though. It was like really um, pretty pretty. Pretty new, I think. Yeah, it felt very new. And every time we had to offer something up, I was like in a sweat. <laughs> just so kind of like, um, you know, because the, win- the, the window to get everything done wasn't very big. So we had, we had to work very quickly. Um, um, Dana, the director, was really great with her feedback. It wasn't, um, it wasn't stressful that way, but the time wasn't, the time was ticking sort of thing. But you know, Marcus, you've got like you with your performance work and stuff. There's like horror elements that you explore, uh, and and your solo work, your solo, your um, work as a solo artist. Some of the more recent albums, or the second to most recent album, explores horror as a broader concept and the tropes that that you find in the music. Isn't yeah, that? F- yeah, for sure, for sure. And I and I think there's definitely like sound elements to those albums that are. Uh, inspired by horror, like yeah, for sure, horror soundtracks are a big influence for me. Outside of um, this sort of stuff and and the stuff I do for myself, um, and like a lot of that, I definitely was trying to bring that into the score because that's um, what felt kind of natural. And mm. maybe there were even some some so- yeah. Sometimes there's there's little bits of crossover, um, but also I feel like this film had. Um, I, I it it had it had an angle with the music that that was was quite helpful. Like that opening scene, they uh, synced this piece of music, um, for cello, uh, and that was kind of like. I feel like that interpretation, yeah, this sort of like like kind of beautiful droney overtone based mm. cello piece. I feel like. Like that kind of approach to the 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 feeling of the soundtrack was 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 a nice thing to follow when we were making it. Totally, yeah, it guided it really guided so many of the ideas after that. Sure, yeah, oh yeah. I want to watch the preview. <laughs> <laughs> let's do this. Let's do this. Let's check out the preview today uh, on Spooko, joined by the composers of the film, uh, Mark Bradshaw and Marcus Whale. We are watching the 2023 Australian psychological horror film, currently number one in films on Netflix at the moment. Directed by Dana Reed, written by Hannah Kent, called Run, Rabbit, Run. Can people come back? Come back from where? From where they go when they die. I had a sister. Her name was Alice. What was she like? like animals. She'd find wild rabbits and bring them home. She went missing when she was only seven. I'm seven. 
don't understand what's going on. It's clear there's something troubling me. I don't want to talk about it. Just pretending to be Alice. I am Alice. Please, this isn't a game. You don't like me. Make me hide and hide. You're a nasty little thing. You're a good girl. Who's Leah? You're a good girl. You're a good girl. Have you guys actually seen the film yet? I haven't <laughs> since the since the sound mix because we like we end up watching it like quite a few times mm. um, in the sound mix, which is uh, in a big cin- in a cinema, right? So it's yeah, kind of, yeah, it is that experience. You really are watching the movie, but but I think also. Um, I, I, I want to watch it with with my housemates this week, maybe. Oh, um, can I can I come? Or next week, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah, come down. It'd be really funny. I mean, Spooko is all about community, and I love the fact that we're actually getting the two composers of this film back together <laughs> since they for the first time since they worked on this film. Peach, you just saw the trailer. What do you think? Uh, did you guys do the trailer score as well? No, Have you seen the trailer enough to comment. I was gonna say I was sort of struck by I was like mm, I've heard this. like I was like it's great to have Mark and Marcus here I feel like I've heard some of these things before and it's like, like we're not necessarily exploring the newest territory um, sonically. <laughs> um, so, oh no, that's probably true. I mean, you watch the film, you're like, what the hell are those guys on? But <laughs> <laughs> so I have a so feeling. I'm, I have a like, feeling that's trailer music. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, like I speaking with zero knowledge and having never watched a film i'm pretty confident it's uh trailer music <laughs> yeah but it's but I, i'm still amped can i say it's marcus fun. you you are the person here who is new to spooker so what we do after peach has seen the trailer mm. we recap the film um a big part of this is we're recapping the film because peach won't watch scary movies and a lot of the people who listen won't watch the film but are keen to hear about it watching this film i couldn't shake the fact that the music is so integral to it and and it's not even really music. And I don't mean that as like a, what's this? It's not music. It's like, it's sound, you know, it's very visceral. Could you, could you both describe, I guess, the sound of this film to someone who hasn't seen it? Yeah, I, I feel like I want to start with this piece that starts the movie by uh, Sarah Hopkins. Um, and... It's just like a really, really drawn out long kind of notes on the cello, low notes that have like a lot of this grinding overtone sound to to them. It's just like droning. That kind of vibe and that feeling of 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 sort of intensity crops up a few times here and there throughout the 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 movie, and and sort of is a bit of a kind of palette from which we, like, do other stuff. Um, there, yeah, for sure, like, a lot of string sounds that, are, that, are, that make you feel tension. Mm. And, and, and a lot of also, like, oh, we threw in a lot of just, like, low subby drones in there. There's a lot mm. of that. Yeah. But, yeah. And windy, windy kind of sounds. And all of it together just feels like, yeah, it, like, is it music, this kind of no melody or anything like that? And, and 
It feels like a ghost sort of like waking up or something, maybe like fuck, it's a ghost waking up. Yeah, like the street, the just like one string on the cello, and then when we kind of do our piece, it's double bass, but it's like this angry thing, you know, that's like could could um, terrorize your life. <clears throat> I mean, Peach, I don't want to spoil anything, uh, although you will be spoiled within the next half an hour. Um, mm. A ghost waking up feels pretty appropriate. Can I ask as well, because because the ending of this film definitely leads it up to interpretation. Without giving too much away, do you guys have an opinion on what happens in this film? Um, yeah. Can I, I mean, do I just say or like? Uh, well, maybe may, you know what? Maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll see what Peach <laughs> yeah, yeah. thinks by the yeah. end of this. Because Should I, I think... write it on a piece of paper now. <laughs> <laughs> like, we can just check in to see. I, I just think there's two distinct things you can believe about what happened in this film. Okay, I'll. I'll write, I'll write my guess down right now and we'll see how close I got. But I will say, I will say that your score made me feel uncomfortable the entire way. I never felt happy or safe watching this film. <laughs> Great. That's so yeah. good. Yeah. It is a very bleak, dark film. Okay. Before we begin as well, usually we use a Wikipedia recap. This film is so new, the Wikipedia only has a premise up. But luckily, there's this weird industry of, I guess, sites looking for clicks that no horror fans want to know exactly what happens in every horror film. So I want to give a shout out to the three websites, The Decider, Review Geek, and Digital Spy, who all had recaps already written for this film that I've sort of cobbled together into one. So the film opens with that droning cello piece. Marcus, did you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the composer, Sarah Hopkins. Um, and that was the choice of the, yeah, the, the, the movie chose that. We didn't choose it. Oh, the movie itself? The movie. But it opens with this like bleak Australian landscape. It's it's weird because it's kind of like it looks like dry arid land, but there's also like a large river running through it. And it's it's that thing where it's like it's a river, but it still seems dead. It's almost like I guess it's like a mangrovey sort of swamp. And we see Sarah Snook. That's the other thing we haven't even fucking mentioned. Like one of the biggest actors in the world because she just finished playing Shiv Roy in Succession, stars in this film, Sarah Snook, but also stars with an Australian accent, which is her native accent, obviously, which just feels fucking weird. But yeah, so we start with Sarah Snook lying on an embankment in the middle of this sort of dead river. We soon find out that Sarah Snook plays Sarah Gregory. I just had this thought while watching this that all actors should play characters that share their first name. Wouldn't that make it easier for everyone on set? <laughs> well, it would, it would make it easier for everyone on set. <laughs> like, I'm not sure that's your number one. Yeah, I could see some problems like... with that idea. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, but she plays Sarah Gregory. Like, we currently have Mark and Marcus as guests <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. Sarah still plays Sarah Gregory, a single mother who lives with Mia, her young daughter, that she and her separated partner, Pete, they both call her Bunny. Now, they live in a modern house in what looks like a relatively upmarket beachside suburb. I get New South Wales, like just outside of Sydney vibes, but it could be somewhere else. They, they purposefully don't point out exactly where they live. But this is where the first half of the film occurs, and it's always really dark. Like, it always feels like it's all almost, like, threatening to rain or it is going to rain. And in the first half of the film as well, there's just, like, heaps of wind. So it's dark, kind of, like, perpetually dusk 
in a sort of upmarket beachy suburb. And Sarah lives with Mia, her young daughter, who they also call Bunny. Sarah works at a fertility clinic and is on pretty good terms with the ex-husband, Pete, who we mentioned, and his new partner, Denise, who Sarah's not on very good terms with. We don't really know why. We soon discover that Sarah's dad, Albert, Sarah's father, has recently passed away, and Joan, her elderly mother, is committed to an assisted living facility. Sarah does not want Mia to have a relationship with her grandma, but the reasons for this aren't initially clear. We see her constantly receiving calls from the, from the facility and hanging up on them. So is she an only child? Like, do we get anything else from Sarah? She's an only child. Oh, sorry. No, she's not an only child. Her sister's dead. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. That's where we... Like, the, the preview gives away, like, quite a bit. But basically, okay. Sarah is living with her daughter, who is the only daughter that she had with her partner, Pete. Yes. She has a dad that... Sarah has a dad that recently died... And a mum, Joan, living in yes. an assisted living facility. Sorry. Like, I don't want to get hung up on deeply unimportant shit, but my question was, Joan had two children. Joan had, well, we're about, yes. yes, and we find that out in the One preview. Although yeah, in, cool, the, cool. in the film, it's weird. Like, they, the, the preview gives a lot away. But, so, we're just establishing this family. This is probably the first 20 minutes of the film. But already- I just love the idea of, like, the Sixth Sense preview being like, guys, watch this crazy film about Bruce Willis being a ghost. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I think's funny? It's like, from the beginning, your score is tense as fuck. Like, from the beginning, I felt like, even though I'm just watching this mum with a daughter and, you know, organising a birthday, I felt really uncomfortable. Was the director basically like, was Dana right from the beginning, it has to be unsettling? Um, or did you try some other things? Yeah, we yeah it would be in that front half that we tried some other things, and then work, and then I think we realised that it's just better to give a good sort of pre sentiment for the second half with the music and and create that unsettling viability on um, yeah, which I think was a smart move because it's not music. It's hard to like. I mean, fuck. I keep saying it's not music. I mean, because it's not melodic. Mm. It, it, it's hard to grasp certain themes or whatever but did you have a, a theme for any of these characters or any of these characters who were sort of mentioned but don't appear no i don't think so i don't think so no <laughs> i don't think it's that kind of film really yeah it's like a um no i think it's like this 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 um ominous dread background thing that's like we we're gonna learn more about it um and it it compels you to keep watching, but I don't. And it's obviously tied to the, our main char- character, Sarah, and uh, what's going on for her. Maybe, yeah. But no, I don't think we have themes in that kind of traditional sense of matching a, a tune up with the character. The, the only thing I can think of is that every time the bunny appeared, there had to be like some kind of rumble. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, it's it's bunny music, really. I, I was going to get to this. I was going to get to this. So this is really interesting, right? So. So, driving home from school on her birthday, Mia asks her mum whether Joan is coming. Now, this is the first time we actually discover this name, Joan. So, the film actually keeps a few things a little bit secret from us for the first 15 minutes or so. Sarah finds this as odd, Joan being Sarah's mum, because uh, we find, you know, within half an hour that Sarah and Joan are estranged and Mia's never met her. So, Sarah says to Mia... Why would you ask about Joan? Mia says, I miss her. Sarah says, how can you miss someone you've never met? And then Mia says, I miss lots of people I've never met. Which, again, coupled with your score, 
is one of the more chilling moments that happens in this film. A lot of a lot of the scariness of this film is the score coupled with Mia saying shit a kid shouldn't say. <laughs> yeah. But can I ask you, I mean, you guys have seen this film without the score. This first half of the film, is it just, does it have an entirely different feeling without the unsettling score underneath it? Yeah, I reckon if you watched, like, the first half of the film in isolation without a score and it never continued on to the second half, it could be a very different you could be watching a very different film that's going to go into like it a- sounds like an episode of Love My Way or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just kind of like quite like it could be sort of kitchen sink. Um, I don't know if that's a derogatory sort of thing, but like more like um, exploring the dynamics of a family, and you're going to get deep into the psychology of um, in a more drama type sense of, of the main character. Well. Um- yeah. Marcus may know this. Whenever, whenever we hear psychological thriller or something, it means there's no ghosts, or, or, or traditionally, it's meant it, it's meant no ghosts. So, I'm I'm sort of on alert for the second half of like, do we get real ghosts, or are people just going with great respect crackers um, in a stressful situation? I mean, when they sell this film to you, did they say this is a horror film? Did they say it was a thriller? What did they say it was? Mm. I think it was sold to me as like an. Uh, um an elevated horror you know that um that the yeah I, the, I don't know why i thought that and the, the kind of metaphors that the that the film's exploring is going to be like yeah and then um uh but i actually feel like it's more hardline horror right like that's what the film ends up being yeah like a proper yeah is that right Th- that's how i feel about it for sure like 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 it's definitely doing things in a tropey way um and 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 I think you know peaches uh, peach sorry not peaches imagine if you were peaches um, hey pe- pe- uh, the oh sorry I've lost my train of thought well like, the trope the trope point's interesting right like scary <laughs> scary children's drawings I'm like yeah okay it's a somewhat animated yeah. horror film but we got some scary children's drawings in here <laughs> you know it definitely it hits it hits all those yeah beats, nice. those horror beats I'd say and um. Yeah. Well, let's march on. Can we? What happens next? Yeah, and yet I was pretty yeah. surprised mm. by what happened. And I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on this, Peach, and to see what you think happens at the end. But anyway, so- I've already written it down, and I can tell you now it's either Fight Club or it was all a dream. So one or the other, <laughs> it'll be so, one so, of those two. so that is actually really funny <laughs> yeah, that you would yeah, say that. Yeah. Anyway, so, so Marcus, you mentioned this rabbit. Okay, so in the previous scene, they're driving home on the day of Mia's birthday, and Mia mentions Joan and how she misses her even though she's never met her. When they get home... Sarah finds a letter in the letterbox that she decides to keep from Mia, and Mia finds a rabbit on the front doorstep. I also think it's really funny as well. In this film, Mia's like, it's a present for me. And it's like, they live in a kind of semi-rural place. If you found a rabbit on your front doorstep, your first thought wouldn't be, this rabbit now belongs to me. Yeah. Of like a gift from whom? Oh, like, oh great. <laughs> <laughs> this wild rabbit is magically domesticated and friends with me. But also. anyway, th- this rabbit, she takes this rabbit in and I guess it becomes it, it, it becomes another character in the film. It shows up quite a bit. Uh, Marcus, you said you had to put a rumble every time there was a rabbit. Can you s- tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah. So, so... I mean, it really is quite simply that, like, like give us a rumble, give us a bit of a subby moment, um, 
with the the rabbit because there's something going on underneath the rabbit. Something. Yeah, it's the unknown, and and it's yeah, it's the and um, it's an Alice in Wonderland reference, I suppose, right? Going down the rabbit hole for sure. So, with the arrival of the rabbit, the fortunes of the household change. Mia starts to behave strangely and wear a spooky rabbit mask. Sarah also discovers bruises and cuts on her daughter's face and is worried she's being bullied. Also, when it comes to tropes, the 2023 trope of let's, you know, injure and murder kids on Child screen. Child in danger. This, yep. kid, this kid goes through the ringer quite a bit. <laughs> uh, I, uh, was, was that something you had to keep? Like, were you, like, when she gets injured as well, like, I noticed there's, like, quite a little bit of tension whenever we notice that she's got a mark on her face or where there's blood or what have you. Yeah, I, I mean, exactly. I think every moment where you could have a rumble, there's a rumble kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you say a rumble, like, how did you – like, what? Like when you say a rumble, is that, like – is that like a keyboard effect? Like what? Or did we shaking something on a mic? What is that? Most of the time, it was a synth. Uh, I, I, I was making some kind of a, a, a sort of low sound on a on, on a synth, um, and then kind of processing it and filtering it so there's only the low frequencies. Uh, and usually putting two notes together so there's there's a bit of um, a bit of uh, chaos and instability in the sound. Yeah. Oh, so, like, manufacturing a discordant kind of like, I feel weird listening to this sort of sort of moment. Yeah, it's meant to feel like very from inside your stomach or something. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's like you feel uncomfortable, like, both psychologically but, like, almost physically uncomfortable watching this. I was never at ease for the 100 minutes of mm. this film's runtime. That's just another great reason to never watch horror movies as well. I'm like, I had a shit time the whole time. And I'm like, yeah, that's, like, that's, that's why I don't but, watch it. But this is, this is what I mean. Like, this is the crux of Feel Bad Club, right? Because that's the sort of thing that feels good. Like, I enjoyed the fact that this film kind of put a spell on me. I enjoyed the fact that this mm. film felt like I was going through something. So, Mark and, Mark and Marcus, this is the dynamic that we're sort of getting into a, yeah, nearly 200 episodes in of, like, does it feel good <laughs> to feel bad? And mm. my sort of view is like, no, I'd prefer like I'd prefer not to feel bad. And Shag's view, Shag, I think you'd accept is that sometimes it feels good to feel bad. I mean, I mean, you know. <laughs> side note, Marcus, as a horror movie fan, do you yeah. under, do you get that feeling? Do you agree with that? That idea that, especially like with really dark and disturbing things, that there's something that feels good about the way that it, that it makes you feel bad. A hundred percent. It's it's the catharsis. I think of it. You you get to really. Uh, like in a dramatic way, fantasize these horrendous things, um, and it, and it makes you more able to um, I don't know, cope with life or something. <laughs> yeah, emerge, yeah, emerge yeah, unscathed. And Dana's feedback and her direction to us was very much like, I don't want to let the audience off the hook at all, not one moment. And that became her mantra more and more throughout the process. Fuck. And, like, even if, like, on a, I don't know how, like, this is too nerdy or whatever, but anytime we tried to introduce harmony or anything like that, she was just like, no way, this is making me feel a little comfortable or, or like, just it's letting me off the hook. And, yeah, so something about just that uncomfortability of, like, one note or two notes giving you, like, yeah, it sounds like a... Muslim curry or something that hasn't been digested properly. <laughs> yeah, Mark, Mark wrote these, these really wrote a lot of really beautiful themes. Um, <laughs> like, like really, like s- some of these pieces are, are just absolutely gorgeous. Like 
it's like just sumptuous, delicious. Like that 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 piece that you have for the end, Mark. Um, anyway, we can talk about that later. But but really beautiful pieces, and 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 they they all yeah. they all they all will end up somewhere else. I think. <laughs> Dana was always like, less notes, more uncomfortable. <laughs> Tiny um, notes in this, in this piece of music. <laughs> yeah. That feels like the sort of feedback you have from someone who's never, like, who doesn't understand music. It's like, well, there's too much playing in this. Yeah. <laughs> Just, like, punch it up a bit. Just, um, uh, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you didn't ask for more notes. <laughs> can, can I ask, though? Because, I mean, you, you've mentioned before you made this in a relatively short amount of time, and she's asked you to make this very dissonant, very, you know, unharmonious like unsettling music did it affect you at all making this yes <laughs> yeah for me it was uh some of the scenes and 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 they were the scenes where uh i had to like uh do several attempts on it because she just wasn't happy with what 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 i was what we were doing um and they were like that we're gonna get to the mm, scenes yeah. i don't know if i should say it, but with the pair of scissors anyway <laughs> I'll, do, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it there. And I, yeah. I desperately yeah, yeah. want to ask about that scene because I think that's one of the more troubling scenes I've seen yeah. in the horror film. So I had, to, I had to watch that over and over again. And I remember calling Marcus and being like, I don't know. I just feel so stressed out <laughs> and like this like um, underlying anxiety. And I think it is like I just have to stop watching that scene. Yeah. Yeah, that scene sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Um, okay. So. Uh, Sarah finally does take Mia to the assistant living facility because, as we said, Sarah keeps getting these messages from there and they keep asking her to come in. So she eventually goes, she brings Mia. When she gets there, she's told that the reason why they've asked her to come in is that Joan has been diagnosed with dementia. So sometimes she's lucid, sometimes she's not. But when she is, she keeps asking to see Sarah and Mia. As soon as Joan sees Mia, she begins sobbing and calling her Alice. Mia returns her embrace, and this is where it starts getting a bit twisted, by saying, yes, grandmother, I am Alice, and I'm back. After that well, is... Surely she'd say, yes, mother. Would oh, she yeah. Well, no, no, well, look, I'm, I'm just paraphrasing what she says. Okay. I don't have the script in front of me. She yeah, probably okay. doesn't say those exact <laughs> words. She basically indicates yep. that she has met Joan before, that she is Alice, and she's back. And after mm. this incident... Mia starts going in and out of being Alice, this character Alice, rather than being Mia. Sick. Her relationship- So it is Fight Club. That's good. <laughs> I, I, I did pick it. That's not- Look, literally every movie since Fight Club has elements of Fight <laughs> yeah, Club. Yeah, it's Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mia, Mia grows, Mia's uh, relationship with her mother grows more tumultuous after this event. Like there's this one scene- where she goes into her bed at night and she seems to be Mia, but halfway through she becomes Alice, starts saying, I hate you. And then as Sarah's leaving the room, she can hear Mia say, you're not my real mom. Sarah tries to look past this behavior, but she's clearly being affected by this too. So, so there's something going on with Mia. It's really not help- helping Sarah. Her school notices it, asks her in for a parent-teacher interview. And the teacher's like, hey, I want to show you something. They show her one of her drawings. Here's a spooky drawing. Yeah, well, no, nice. no, no, no. Sarah's like, this is a cool drawing. They're like, no, flip it over. And it's a spooky drawing. It's black crayon with what looks like a figure holding a rabbit. And keep in mind, this rabbit that they bought keeps just like showing up in the house. I don't quite know how to describe it, but every now and then there's just a shot of Sarah noticing the rabbit pass a doorway. 
or Mia sees the rabbit, you know, just sitting in the corner of the room. And you sort of rumble away, yeah. <laughs> and there's just like a rumble to make you feel yeah. scared. Yeah. When Also, when Mia becomes Alice, were you directed to like put some scary shit underneath uh-huh. that? I wasn't, just to be clear, so that was for you guys. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, yes. Uh, I, you know, if, if, there need, if, if there's scary shit, then we're going to do some scary shit uh, in, to, to support that scary shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Drones are Us. I don't think it's a kind of film where, like, you could have, like, like is that the other, like, is that a ghost in the background um, and leave it up to the audience? You- Kind of have to signal it, mm. I feel. Yeah, that was the vibe. So Sarah goes home and discovers pretty much on the back of all of Mia's drawings, there are these, like, spooky, disturbing horror movie trope portraits. She tries to call Pete, who we remember is her ex, who is the father of Mia, to help, but she can only get through to Denise, who she clearly has some sort of a frosty relationship with. Denise, at this point, reveals she knows about Alice We find out now that Alice is Sarah's or was Sarah's sister and something happened to her at some point. So now we get to the second half of the film. So the first half of the film is like bleak, rainy, windy in this like upmarket suburb. The second half of the film takes place where that initial shot was, where Sarah Snook was uh, lying on the ground in this like weirdly barren, but also barren uh, environment with a river running through it. She takes Mia to the house where they grew up. Because the dad's just died and the mum's in care, this house is, is essentially abandoned. But it's still, you know, in the, in the like, it's still, like, it, it's not, like, run down yet because the dad was living there up until, like, very recently. So they go there with the intention of cleaning it out now that her dad is gone and the mum is in care. On the drive there, Mia professes to have talked to her grandfather before he died and he promised he would return to the world as a pelican because he needed to keep an eye on Sarah. And again, like, if, if there wasn't the score, you'd be like, oh, what a cute thing for a kid to Crazy. say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but with the score, you're like, what the fuck? And now you're looking out for fucking pelicans as well as everything else you're looking out for. <laughs> They're not the scariest, but uh, like, I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. They are pretty scary if you're like face to face with a pelican. They're pretty big. I could take a pelican. That'd be fine. It's a very toxic, toxic masculinity podcast as well. Okay, I'll fight a pelican. When we get to the house, Sarah gets distracted by the figure of a girl in the distance. It's that classic again. Like it's funny how this movie does use a lot of horror movie tropes, but still came to an ending that I wasn't quite expecting. So sees the girl in the distance, and then when she looks back, this girl is gone. Mia is quite resourceful. Finds a spare key under a pot plant. And lets is the girl in. in a spooky nightgown? So long as we're doing tropes of like spooky kids' drawings, is she in sort of like an old nightgown? Yeah, but you could be right. Yes. I also think again because if you're not listening, I don't know if this is the same outside of Australia. You could quite easily break into ninety percent of Australian houses by just looking under the pot plant on the front doorstep. I don't lock my house. Like, I don't know. I'm like I'm about it. I'm like yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> so inside on the walls of the house. We see photos of a happy family, including photos of Sarah and Alice together when they were kids. Mia finds Alice's old room with photos that look just like Mia and begins wearing Alice's old clothes. Sarah is so outraged by this. And this is one of those scenes, I think I was watching this with Adele, my partner, and she was like, fuck this, I'm out, because 
Sarah exhibits really fucked parenting towards Mia. Like, it's not that classic, I need to protect my kid. Like, there's something fucked about their relationship. She literally roughly drags Mia, who's like a seven-year-old kid, out of the room because she's angry that she wants to, like, try on the clothes of this auntie she's never met. We eventually learn that Alice went missing when she was Mia's age. Mia begs to see her grandmother again, and after a conversation with Pete, Sarah agrees. This time, Joan is lucid, does not call Mia Alice, and seems confused and upset by Mia's proclamation that she's Alice. It's also revealed that Joan still believes that Alice will someday come back, in inverted commas. Sarah gets upset with Mia calling herself Alice. Mia slaps her mum and says, I hate you, and runs out of the room. After this, probably to, like, come to some sort of understanding with Mia, Sarah takes Mia to this stone chimney that serves as a monument to Alice's disappearance. This had one of these, like, awesome, uh, I guess, like, fake-out moments because we don't see this chimney again, but there's this crazy moment where we go, we, we look at this, like, she's like, this is, a, like, you know, a bit of a monument to your auntie who went missing, and then they leave, and then the camera slowly draws in to this black opening of it as the sound just builds and builds and builds and builds to this crescendo and then nothing. Yeah, I suppose I was often instructed to do this and um, <laughs> I, I, th- I think they are about kind of coordinating with the movement of the Zoom, for instance, or, or, or some, something being shown to us um, that would often lead to being just at the edge of perceiving the the other side or whatever, the, the kind of, like, ghostly realm, um, but then, like, not mm. actually quite getting there. Like, I think I think that um, that shadowy sort of uh, hole in the memorial thing, um, I think if you, if you, like, freeze the frame, you can probably see a bit of an outline of, of somebody. Oh, fuck, really? Are you kidding? Oh, la, la. I, I, th- I think so. I, I seem to remember something like that. Or maybe it was just in the mm. sound. Um, but it's definitely like crying in the sound design and stuff like that um, as well. Yeah. Yeah, and in these moments, it's like they try, they're like, how explicit are we going to be? And I think we've probably seen versions of it where there was like a little animated thing. Yeah, animated, right, like, right, right. And I'm not sure if they ended up, and then there was like, they tried out uh, some crying sound effects. Some, I'm not sure what ended up in the final film. But, um, yeah, it's like we don't know everything and, and those, like, those crescendos are, 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 um, kind of point to that. It's so cool as well because leaving the audience, like, not letting them up, as Dana would say in her direction, doesn't just have to be playing unsettling music, but it's bringing you to these moments where it's like, are we revealing something? Maybe we are. I don't know. And it, there are so many moments in this where it's like, oh, is this? Maybe it's not. Like, I don't know. And you're just constantly kept on the edge of your seat. All right. So after this, Mia also keeps drawing disturbing drawings and getting nosebleeds. Speaking as Alice, Mia accuses Sarah of locking her up while the sisters were playing hide and seek. Sarah continues to see the rabbit wandering the house on its own. She tries to call Pete again for help and is, is, is frustrated by the lack of support he's giving her. Sarah decides to sell the house and keep Joan at the facility 
something that Albert told Sarah before he died. While packing things away in a shed, she hears whispering in a locked cupboard. She goes out of frame, and this is one of those moments. This is this is so wild, right? Because she goes out of frame, and we hear a voice say, found you, and she gasps, and then it just cuts to another scene like nothing happened. Can you tell us about this scene? Because this is like the first properly like, oh, something fucks going on moment in the film. Yeah, I, th- I think this cupboard became uh, where a-, a lot of stuff unfolds in terms of, of um, the supernatural elements that are implied beforehand coming up to the surface. Um, that felt like a bit of a portal. Um, so I think maybe that that was like a, a sort of like first foreshadowing moment a little bit um, before it, it um, you know, presses on to a different scene, but then we return to it later. One of the things I noticed whenever you have the cupboard, there's the, pro- probably the most rhythmic part of the soundtrack is almost it's almost kind of the sound of it felt like a washing machine or something. It's always like a boom 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 like not quite that sounds like a heartbeat. Maybe it's not a heartbeat. It's like boom boom. That feels like something that I noticed when we had anything to do with that shed and that cupboard. Well, I, I think there was there was always in the sound in the shed, like this is part of the wind thing. Like I I think I guess I'm talking about the sound design now, um, which we didn't do. But um, there's like always like a swinging door at the entrance of the shed, and and no matter what's going on in that shed, there was always like some implication of like the door moving in the wind. It's just amazing how this sound, the w- wood sound, quite abstract outside of this film, just makes you feel just awful the whole way through. And I mean that in the best possible way. Okay. So she goes back to Joan at the facility to let her know that they're selling, but her mother turns violent and claims that Mia is not safe with Sarah. When Sarah returns home, she finds that Mia has escaped the house. Sarah can't find her anywhere. She's like panicking. She's running around this landscape. She eventually goes into the woods and finds Mia cowering behind some bushes. Mia, who at first appears as Alice to Sarah, says, found you. Sarah tells Mia that they're moving out of the house, but Mia does not want to leave, having occupied Alice's room and her wardrobe. Now she's pretty much only calling herself Alice. That night, Sarah has a dream in which she is holding Mia's hand on the property near a sheer cliff face. She turns around and sees her dad pointing at her, and we get that banging sound. We get that door sound in this dream sequence, right? Which is like, which is crazy because it's not in the shed, but we get that here. Like these dream sequences again. Tell us about scoring these. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I think I know what you're talking about now. This, this, this like washing machine ish kind of sound. It's just like a kind of like pulsing noise. Yes. Um. Yeah. I think again th- that was another that dream sequence is another like big kind of crescendo to nothing um moment. Uh, and again that sort of is at that threshold. Like like sh- she's she wakes up I think after that. Um. And there's this sort of feeling like like once once you get kind of close to something from the other side uh we get like lurched back into the the um the kind of horror of the present as well mm. i'm excited i like i'm i like i'm right? like this film like this film is like the more like as i was like yeah. going over this recap i'm like i really fucking like enjoyed mm. the feel the bad feeling of, of run <laughs> rabbit run. Okay, so 
she wakes up because bleeding into her dream is the sound of screaming. When she wakes up, Mia is screaming. She's had a nightmare. Sarah runs in, but as she like holds her head to be like, hey, you're okay and comfort her, she discovers blood on her hands. And then when she, like lots of blood. And then when she looks, there's clearly blood gushing from like underneath Mia's hair somewhere. So classic parenting move. She runs into her bedroom, (laughs) gets the biggest pair of scissors I've ever seen. And I guess is like, I'm going to cut your hair to see where it is. But Mia's freaked out. And obviously she's freaked out by her mother's behavior. Sarah is not in her right mind. And in this frenzy, and again, this is the scene we're talking about. (sighs) Sarah cuts and slashes Mia multiple times on her face and her arms with this giant pair of scissors, like properly like giant gashes with these scissors. So we do need to talk about this. Like, what do you do? Like, how do you score a scene in which a mother in a frenzy is cutting her seven-year-old daughter with a pair of scissors? I'm sorry to bring this back up for you as well. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Why do you guys love parents abusing children so much that you write music about it? Yeah. <laughs> It was a, it was a tricky one. I, I we tried a few things, and um, I think what end, ended up working in the end was quite a classic sort of horror um, scoring idea. Um, it's just this again. It's it's a crescendo, <laughs> a crescendo of sound, of string sounds, and and um, it's just a slightly sort of yeah slower one maybe, but. Um, it's so horrific. It kind of didn't. I mean, that's all it could take. You know what I mean? It just—it's just going along with the horror that you're seeing that's unfolding. That there was no space yeah. for subtlety, like Mark. Like, is that—is that kind of it? Like, there's no space for nuance. We're just looking at violence, and so we need to treat it as such. Is—is is that sort of the? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't need a counterpoint. I mean, yeah, it couldn't take a counterpoint or anything like that. But it was just, yeah, that's a kind of. Well, by that point when we're scoring that scene we'd already done so much that it had to come from the sound world that we're exploring and i think it's just this sort of um pulsing double bass sound which we've heard a few times already so it's it just feels like a continuation of that a continuation of the horror that we've already set up helping make a scene like that do you get decent like by on the 10th watch are you kind of desensitized to what you're watching I thought I was, but I def yeah, I remember having a chat with Marcus and just being like, I feel like low level anxiety and I'm not sure what it's about anymore, but I think I just need to stop watching that scene over and over. Yeah. It's, it's genuinely brutal. a horrible thing to watch. Like it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. like like I it it yeah, it makes sense that it was cuz you know, and and there's something you do get dispassionate I think about the things that you see when 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 you're scoring something because you do it over and over again. But there are some things that just like that that don't get any more new. They don't get neutral. Like they're always yeah. horrific things to see. Yeah, this is a scene for sure, and also the continual crying out of Mia. Mia. <laughs> Mia. <laughs> <laughs> there's, no, there's no way you can get used to that. All right, so. After this, we get a flashback where we learn the truth. And in this flashback, Sarah kind of plays herself as an adult and herself as a child sometimes. So we get this, like, crisscross of her experiencing this memory, but also the actual memory itself. So it's very clear that this is something that happened to Sarah and Alice when they were kids. As sisters, Alice and Sarah used to fight a lot, 
And it's suggested that Sarah was actually bullied quite a bit by Alice, which is why Sarah took Mia's supposed suffering very seriously. One day, while playing hide-and-seek in the shed, Sarah, like, either to get back at her sister or, who, like, who knows, locked Alice in the cupboard, and she's, like, banging on the door, being like, let me out, let me out. So when Sarah finally unlocks the door, Alice launches out of this cupboard and pins her to the ground and starts choking her. Defenseless, Sarah grabbed onto a rabbit trap nearby. I didn't know it was a rabbit trap until I read these different synopses and smacked Alice on the head, causing these huge marks and this bleeding very similar to all the marks that she was seeing on Mia's face early on. Mm. Sarah started chasing Alice out of the shed who ran towards the edge of the cliff we saw in the first dream. As she hears parents calling, Sarah panics and pushes Alice off the cliff and, though we don't know, we assume killed her. Sarah then wakes up to the sound of Pete banging on the door, being like, Open up! Mia! Sarah! What's wrong? She's lying on the ground outside Alice's room. Every single picture frame we originally saw in the house has been smashed and is lying on the ground. And she is just lying on the ground, but her right hand is scribbling a picture on the ground with crayon, exactly like those pictures that were on the back of all of Mia's drawings. So it's kind of a nice flip where it's like Mia wasn't drawing those scary drawings on the back of her pictures. Sarah had been drawing those scary pictures, unbeknownst to her. Pete breaks in and neither of them can find Mia. They frantically look for Mia. They get down past the cliff, down to the riverbank. Sarah has a vision of seeing a drowning Alice, jumps in, but Pete jumps in and drags her back to safety. They then turn around and find Mia sitting safely but cowering by the shore, and they bring her back to the house. This is where it gets a little bit weird, right? Because I would feel like after this, if I was the dad, I would not let them out of my sight. Oh, he's like, oh, well, that was pretty crazy. (laughs) It seems seems like that's happening, but maybe that's not happening. And this is where Mm. it gets a little bit like, what's your interpretation? So Sarah goes to the facility that night to tell Joan what had actually happened, to finally be like, you know what, I'm going to give you peace. But as she's sitting down next to Joan, who may or may not be lucid, she's like, hey, uh, mom, I've got something to tell you. I know what happened to Alice. She's dead. And the mom basically says, oh, no, no, that can't be right. Alice isn't dead. She goes home. She hugs Mia to sleep. Again, we don't know if this is real or not, but she's in bed and she hugs Mia to sleep. Sarah confesses her crime. Like, this is really, this is where it's so fucked up. She's basically like, she's confessing her crime, but she's confessing it to Alice, not to Mia in bed. She calls herself a monster, and Mia, as Alice, agrees with her and says, yes, you are a monster. Sarah falls asleep, but we see the entire time Mia has her eyes open. Sometime later, she spots the rabbit hopping around the room, clearly trying to lead her somewhere. Mia slips out from Sarah's grasp, and walks outside. Sarah wakes up and finds the bed empty. She looks through the window and she sees Mia and Alice holding hands, walking towards the cliff. They both look back at her, they say something to each other, and then they keep walking towards the sheer cliff face. Sarah is like banging on the window, screaming on the window, but she can't get out of the house. The screen then cuts to black. And that's the end of Run, Rabbit, Run. Yeah, good end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yep, yep. 
So first of all, Peach, was it like was it Fight Club? Was it all in her head? Were there ghosts? Like, what do you think happened? Uh, well, I don't think it was Fight Club. Uh, I'm content to say I was wrong about that. It was all a dream. I think it's probably still uh, still up there as a possible reveal. But I think neither. Like, I'm really down to be like, hey, yeah, there were ghosts uh, arising from. Uh, like, I think you explained, Shake, there was a J horror trope where there can be real traumatic events that cause the creation of a sort of ghoulish um, demonic presence that will often take the form of a young girl and you're sort of fairly traditional understanding of what a J-horror villain looks like. And to me, this struck me as more consistent with that kind of tradition really than than with any other. So the resonance, like this, this didn't feel like hereditary style elevated horror. This struck me as like geographically transported J-horror was kind of my um, reading on it. So I was very content with like, yep, there are ghosts. Yep, ghost of a dead sister was there to kill her daughter. Uh, bing, bang, bing, crazy old ghost story is kind of where where I'm at, having not seen the film uh, nor heard the score. I mean, Marcus, you mentioned the ghost realm quite a few times as we were talking about this film. Do you think it was a supernatural antagonist in this film? Do you think it was a supernatural story? It's an interesting question because I, I guess the whole kind of like the whole sort of chat about so-called elevated horror is is that oh the 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 things that we see are a stand-in for something in the world like it's like it's like a metaphor or whatever. Um, this I think it's important in horror movies to take them at face value sometimes, and 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 this is one where for me in the reality of the movie we have to and I want to understand it as supernatural um and of course there are like very very clear analogs to that supernatural thing as there's a lot in it about being like feeling feeling the fantasy of being like a, a bad person or like a bad mother in particular but yeah i i i i think like it's good to think of it as totally supernatural for me I mean, Mark, did Dana ever say, hey, by the way, rabbits are ghosts, so make it sound like a ghost? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. We did, there wasn't a lot of talk about um, that kind of thing. I, yeah, I see it as, like, um, you know, how it's sort of impossible not to bring your own childhood into your parenting, you know what I mean? Great. Cool. And the trauma of, like, killing your sister is this, and it's a repressed thing, and it's coming up again, and... Yeah, I kind of see it that way. This happens in horror films a lot, right? Like, things that aren't dealt with come up as ghosts. And, I mean, that's just a metaphor for life, right? But I I think watching it was just the experience, but then going through the recaps and putting them together, that awesome idea that, to your point, Mark, she repressed this thing and then didn't realise that the moment her daughter hit the same age as Alice, that would become, Mm. like, a real triggering moment. For things to happen. Yeah. I think for me, it's kind of got to be supernatural because of the rabbit. Because both Mia and her see the rabbit. And unless she imagines the rabbit and she imagines Mia saying she's Alice and all of those are like, she's in a fugue state. It kind of has to be a ghost. 
I think. Or Fight Club. Mm. Or Fight Club, or Fight Club. And she's, she is her daughter and she Alice. Daughter. Oh, no, it's a tale of two sisters because she's two people at the same time. Um, what, happens, what happens to the husband? So he just doesn't appear. Like, after they find her, he's not in the film anymore, which, is, which makes me think yeah. those final scenes aren't real. Well, I feel okay. Like no, no. I, I, yeah. I have to interject here because um, <laughs> in the background of one of the scenes... Uh, one of the last scenes uh, before the, you know, the girls um, cartwheel away into the distance is that in the background you can see that um, the dad is asleep on the mattress or dead on the mattress. Like, you know, that's oh another God. thing. It's like pretty, like he's just like in the background, like he's clearly there, but yeah. you like wouldn't necessarily register it um, because it's like not, not in focus. I think it's very possible... Yeah, I think it's very possible she killed him, right? Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's that's some. It's one of these kind of like little secondary things that just like add another detail to interpret. I think. Yeah, she's 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 drawing without knowing it. She's doing all these things without knowing it. I think she's probably killed him and killed killed her daughter. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the like. Uh, Adele's always, like Adele uh, in our couple. Adele is always the one that picks the, the twist before I do. And really early on, she's like, "Sarah Snook is a fucked mom. Fuck this." And I was like, "No, it's horror. <laughs> she's going through a lot." But then by the end, you're like, "Oh no, you're a bad mom, and you're doing awful things to your daughter." Sort of thing. <laughs> Guys, I need to say thank you so so <clears throat> much for joining us and helping us recap a, a, a pretty toothy horror film that I think I'll still be unpacking after this episode. Are you working on more stuff together? What's happening? Yeah. <laughs> Don't know what it is, but, I've, I, but definitely. For yeah. sure. Not sure what it is, though. For sure. Yeah. Yes. It always comes up, you know? Things always come up. Yeah. 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 It's like a rotation of, like, yeah, so one year we'll, like, score some television, and then the next year we'll do, like, some do some music for a dance piece, and then a film, and then on our off years we'll just sing some R&B together. <laughs> oh, can I, can I, can, That's what we're can, working on. Can we get some R&B? Like just just to end the episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's what we're doing. Oh Christ. Majestic. We should have prepared like a full version of um the Whitney Houston Mariah Carey song, um When You Believe. Mm. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, so before we go, okay, first of all, Marcus, people are hearing you on this. They're like, this is sick. I want to hear more of Marcus's work. What's one thing you'd like us to point them towards? Uh, I think given the horror uh, aspects, maybe just my last album, because it's about wanting to become a vampire. It's called The Hunger. And Mark, tell us, what are you working on right now? What can we see or what can we hear from you in the future? Uh, yeah. Um, just finished music for this eight-part television series called The Clearing. It's set um, in a cult that existed in the 80s in Australia called The Family. It's on Disney+. Plus, and the eighth final episode is, I think, is streaming on Wednesdays. So all eight episodes will be out. Awesome. I hope there weren't too out. many notes in your score, though. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of rumbles. This was recorded at FBI Studios. 
please like, subscribe and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's it. That's what we're doing.